Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bound. It's the final show of 2021 and what a year it's been. Here in the UK at least, we started the year off cooped up at home, riding out yet another wave of that pandemic. By the summer, we were out and about though, enjoying concerts, festivals, the cinema and theatre, all the things that had been missing from our lives in the preceding 12 months. And boy... Did that feel good? For us here on Monocle on Culture, this meant the first few months of the year were spent chatting with all sorts of interesting people around the world who were keeping the arts alive in the face of gallery and venue closures. And today, we're going to revisit some of those conversations. We've packed in as many as we possibly could, so hold on tight as we take you on a roller coaster ride through music, film and books, picking up the likes of Tom Jones, Carrie Joji Fukunaga and Patricia Lockwood along the way. Now there a theme park ride you never expected to get on. So we'll start with a legend. When the call came asking if we'd like to speak to the one and only Tom Jones about his new album Surrounded by Time and the rest of his phenomenal career, of course, we jumped at the chance. Yeah, it was on Zoom, but man, Tom practically jumps through the laptop. Such is the force of his vitality. Here is the main man on what he's learned over the years about how to be a sublime performer. You need to be larger than life. Like on stage, I'm larger than life. You know, singing in workmen's clubs to a lot of, you know, coal miners and their wives and girlfriends in South Wales, you've got to have a big voice. You can't be up there singing to yourself. You better, you know, you better perform. So when you learn your trade in a certain way, sometimes it's difficult then to um, to sort of take to it change. to pitch. Yeah. 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 To start all over again sometimes, you know, you think, well, wait a minute, I got to I got to rethink this. I don't want to look like I'm just coming on like Mr. Jolly, uh, you know. <laughs> this song is not, this song is not jolly. You know what I mean? Yeah. You've, got to, you've got to be a bit more serious sometimes. You mentioned those those days, the working men's clubs in South Wales and all the rest of it, from which there is such a proud tradition of, of song and of singing. I'm sure you've been asked this question a million times, but I wonder what what those first songs you heard on the radio were or what the songs that you heard around the piano were that, that kind of, injected you with this kind of passion for doing it yourself standing up on stage what were those kind of bricks in the wall for you early on yeah um well as far back as i can remember there, there was a song i used to do in school called ghost riders in the sky ah. you see when i could accompany myself because i used to bang the desk and it had a <laughs> it had a great sound if you if you sm- if you hit the desk with the with the with the palm of your hand or the of the whatever that part of your hand is called. Yeah, the heel of your hand, I think. The heel of your hand, yeah. yes. Well, if you bang that, you know, that, there's the bass drum right there, you see, especially on a desk in school mm. that, is, that resonates when you when you hit it with your... So it was like, you know, like this. I could get a rhythm going and then sing Ghostwriters in the Sky. So I did that without having to rely on somebody playing the bloody piano that didn't know it, you know what I mean? Or something. I could accompany myself in some way. So I used to go for a cappella stuff, you know, that I could get up and sing. And I used to see fellas do it a bit later on when I when I was able to go to pubs and, and uh, work in his clubs myself. I saw a, a man, uh, his name was Glenog Evans, who was a rugby player apart from other things, he was a big chap, coal miner, 
rugby player, and he would get up on a Sunday night in the Woodroad Club, and we would be there, teddy boys, young, you know, hoodlums. Bothering everyone. Yeah, bothering everyone. <laughs> you know, like, oh, okay, come on, Glenn, you know, give us a song. Now, he would sing a song called My Mother's Eyes, right? So here we are, me and my mates, taking the piss, really, you know, thinking, oh, come on, Glenn, yeah, come on, sing uh, like this. And they would open the, the windows in the Woodrow Club, in the summertime especially, of course. And there was another club down on the Broadway, which is a street below us, uh, the Fifth Welsh, right? Which was um, another another club. So they would like, okay, wait a minute, Glenn, let's open the windows so they can hear you down in the Fifth Welsh. You know what I mean? Because he didn't <laughs> want to use the microphone. He would put the microphone to the other side of the stage. I don't need that. You know what I mean? I can sing like this. So we're looking at him and thinking, okay, go on, you know. And he would sing My Mother's Eyes. And this is true as God's my living judge. He would start this thing and we think, oh, okay. And by the end of it, he would have everybody crying. Yeah. <laughs> all my life. You know, yeah. All us teddy boys, right? So I thought, Jesus Christ, if this fella, you know, starting off, we're taking a piss out of him and he ends up and we're all fucking weeping. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> if you could do that, that is, there, there it is right there, in a yeah. nutshell. So... All those things I was taking on board, you see. And and then when I got to sing myself in these clubs, uh, I, I would rely on stuff like that. And you can do that with a rock and roll song or, you know, if like when I first went into a, a workman's club with a with a band, with my with my rhythm section, right? The first thing was pay them off. This is what they used to show, pay them. Not to play. Pay you not to play. Once they saw electric guitars and amplifiers, you see. So now... Now I've got to get up there and say, just a minute, lads, you know, you know me. Oh, yes, we know you, Tommy. Yes, you're all right. But, you know, what about all the rest of it? And I said, well, just wait a minute. So I should say to the band, though, we'll start with My Mother's Eyes. And we can do, I believe, Frankie Lane, big ballad, see? Boom. Then, all of a sudden, rip balls of fire. You know what I mean? You know, when they're not looking. You soften them up a bit. <laughs> exactly. But you've got to go, you've got to learn to to give people what they want. You know, to let them know that you can sing the kind of stuff that they are used to listening to. Then, you can, you can teach them, if you like, you know, with something that they wouldn't ordinarily listen to. Just Tom Jones on the show there. No biggie. Earlier this year, we caught up with David and Stephen Diwali, better known as the superstar electric duo Soulwax, and it was quite the family affair. The, the other person who will be coming in to play, uh oh, to play a demo. Sorry, it's my mom. <laughs> let's, let's open the let's open the interview up. This would be like this is your life. No, oh, you don't want my mom involved. Um, <laughs> So, uh, While we didn't end up chatting with Mrs. Diwali, I did get to speak to the Belgian brothers about their handsome studio in Ghent. And as we were then in lockdown, we talked about what they were missing or not about being globetrotting DJs. I guess Dave and me, the last 20 years of our lives were three out of five weeks we were on a plane or in a hotel somewhere in the world. So to all of a sudden spend a whole year in one place is already a weird one for us. And it's interesting that Steph and I have different reactions to it. I think Steph's a lot more at ease with being just here 
and to me, I think my Dave misses the airport. <laughs> yeah, I miss I miss the banal things like checking into a hotel. Like, I, yeah, I, you know what? That's that's a bit, you know, facetious to 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 say that. But really, what I really really miss is this feeling that nothing else can replace, and that is when you're living that life where you're like you're in Chile for. 48 hours and then you go to Milan and then you're in New York and then you're in LA just by being in a place for even a short amount of time you feel connected to the world and that that is something I, I, I really desperately miss right now I, I feel disconnected from a from a world where everyone is sort of a lot more in their own bubbles and we you know there's not can't go more bubble than this uh, <laughs> this is this is definitely uh, our own bubble and it's amazing but it for the better part of 20 years, it was matched with an but incredible I, connection to the world. But, but I guess this year has also emphasized that we are close relations with people, our friends, or the people we have close relationships with are all over the world. And maybe the last 20 years, we never really thought about what if we are stuck in one place. And because of the internet, it's it's been amazing to, to keep in contact with these people. Now, I also miss, like what Dave says, having amazing record stores all over the world and, and hanging out with friends and, and have, you know, like all those things. What I don't miss, and that's the difference between us, I really don't miss the banal airport. I don't miss Terminal 5. I really don't. I have to say... You don't I, miss I the like noodles I, in the cafe lounge. You know? No, <laughs> no, I don't. And, and, and I do. And, you know, like, yeah. it's, it's a thing where sometimes people w w would come up to Dave and me and they'd be like, oh, you know you have so many miles and you have so many, you know, like they, they would look at and I'd be like, there's nothing, nothing in that to be proud of. You know, like it's, if anything, it shows you how disconnected you've been from reality sometimes. Yeah, no, it's not something to be proud of. I know, I know, but, but like but he, he misses some little, like little thing, but, it, but they've been integral parts of our lives. I kind of like also the idea that I had to rethink this whole thing. Yeah, maybe you can just um, put a chocolate on your pillow and um, make the little make the loo roll into a little little triangle. Make a little you swan. Can do that at, at home. Make a little swan out of like a towel. Out of the towel. <laughs> like, uh, and here's your yeah. swan, Steph. <laughs> yeah. Just just finally on that travel thing, both of you, what have been your kind of favorite itineraries? Your favorite festivals to play? Your favorite clubs to play? Favorite islands to visit? How long, whatever. How long do you have? How long? Number one for us, the trip that we've always looked forward to in our heads has always been Japan. We were really lucky when we started with our band with Solwax in 96, I think, or 90... First time we went was 99. 99. First time. We, uh, we, did a, we went as the, with our band for the first time to Japan. And we've been to Japan maybe twice a year, every year since. And it is for Dave and me, it's kind of out of category. Because you know, people uh -huh. ask you, what's the favorite place? What's your favorite thing? And you're like... Yeah, so there's Japan, and then there's the, the and then we can then we can have like a sort of a list, because that's in itself it's a bit like um, Treasure Island. It just feels like every time we go, we keep chipping away, and you're like, oh my god, this is amazing, or, or this is so beautiful, or, and it's been very inspiring for us because we've been. I think the building we built actually is sort of like a tribute to Japanese architecture, and so there's a lot of influence I think from Japanese culture in in our lives and in what we buy and in what we've, we listen to and stuff. Dave like, always says when we land, <laughs> I, I am already sad when we land that we have to leave 
in 10 <laughs> days or 12 days. Back in the middle of the summer, we welcomed Lump into the studio. Who? Lump? Oh, that's the name of the very brilliant and beguiling side project of the excellent musicians Laura Marling and Mike Lindsay. They talked about collaboration, naming their new album Animal, how to talk about the music you make, and of course, pirate jokes. Ah, what's the pirate's favourite letter? Oh, I don't know. Tell me what. It'd be the C. Ah, but you meant to go R. Anyway. R. Um, and how does it? Work? So Laura turns up with her with her psychoanalysis derived, sort of slightly nonsense poetry. All these and reading between the lines, between the lines, and trying not to read her herself, comes up with this book of lyrics. How does that change your music, Mike? How does that sort of does that that presumably pushes things on? That, yeah, that, that's another creative step. We're talking about these two things clashing together and making this this record how's that yeah it's always quite amazing when um uh lyrics and melody suddenly sort of pair with 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 the wonk and uh, that's be- a, such a thrill right when you it hear is, it is it is yeah speakers, and it's yeah. um i find it really it's really like a drug you know and and so it's suddenly you're in this zone and and time kind of stands still and it sometimes takes some time to get to that to get to that point. Sometimes Laura disappears to the kitchen for about an hour when I think it's never going to happen, and then you come up with, with the genius, and uh, <laughs> and then it's just suddenly it's it's like it was always meant to be, you know. And that's 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 the sort of greater than the sum of its parts moment, I think. Yeah. And that's when you know it feels like a. I don't know if you can say a great. We've made a great song, but you know it's. Um, we can say that you've made a really, really <laughs> wonderful second record. We, yeah, that's, that's what we're here. For. All right, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> Woo. go ahead, go yeah. ahead. Um, you do feel it at the time, and it is immediate, and it's um, it's a it's a very special thing when there's something that never existed before suddenly exists, and it didn't exist before you got off that train to Margate, and um, and now it does, you know, mm. and um, and now we're talking about it. What about talking about it? It's a bit sounds a bit sort of navel gazing, but does that make it more or less real? Or do you go, what have I made here? When you have to explain it, because it's sometimes it's quite an ephemeral thing, and you're doing it through this, the prism of lump. You're not, you're not, you know, Laura Marley and Mike Lindsay. You're, you're lump. Mm. Is it like water trickling through your hands, or is it a more solid thing when you talk about it? I wonder. It's a good, really good question because I think we have struggled to figure out a way, a sort of common language with which to discuss it. Because yeah. Lump seemed, the name Lump, which was my goddaughter who's like eight or something when she, she, she screamed from? Lump at me when I asked her what, <laughs> <laughs> what she'd call her band. Um, and it sort of had that and that sort of childlike name as well and whatever. We, and we, we sort of felt like that was an appropriate thing for the, to describe what we were doing, which is this, which is something very rare for me to experience collaboration in that way. I'm mm. extremely private in all senses. And I think because the collaboration was such a sort of, like is such a satisfying process, it's almost like we're in a bit of a daze about what we feel about it. And so it's quite difficult to then come and try and sort of, I don't know, you're essentially I mean, trying to sell it. This is the first time we've talked about it, I think. <laughs> yeah, exactly, we've we never s- had a conversation. Certainly well, I don't t- <laughs> sort of come in and say, so what's the new record about, guys? You've got yeah. four minutes, go. Do you know Yeah, well, we, it's, it is interesting because we don't really talk about it whilst making it. In fact, we, you know, we don't, you know, we don't, we just sort of get on with it, really, don't we? Yeah. You know, that's our method, really, a sort of um, cup of coffee, bit bit of chit-chat, how's the train, and then... Um, you know, yeah. She unfurls and she got the bowler hat, the umbrella under the arm, yeah. the Financial <laughs> Times in the briefcase, put all that down and then just get on with being a bloody musician. That's right. Exactly. Okay. That's right. Get on with the job. 
this year, Monocle on Culture celebrated a decade on the airwaves. Holly and I have spent a lot of time in the studio making radio magic. Well, you can decide what word to give it. But we thought to celebrate 10 years of the programme, which studio should we go to? Up the road from Monocle HQ is that place called Abbey Road Studios. Now that is a studio. And here we are in the Beatles' favourite, Studio 2. So here we are, we're in the Studio 2 Abbey Road. I can't think of a single good story attached to this place, but maybe you can. <laughs> nothing happened here. Nothing happened. Nothing, happened. nothing, happened. nothing to see here. So this is, again, again like walking in your, fir- your first day at Abbey Road, everyone knows the, 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 the albums that were cut here in the early, throughout the 60s especially, I suppose. 70s, Dark Side of the Moon, as well as all the Beatles stuff. And again, what did you feel like when you first walked in here? It, it's so many brilliant photographs have taken of the Beatles recording and writing in this room and, and all the rest of it. Do you get a tingle up your spine when you, when you walked in here at the beginning? Yeah, it's the most famous recording studio in the world. And to this day, it still feels very special whenever you walk in here. Just the way it looks and the way it sounds, uh, the way it smells even. Not, there's nothing else quite like Studio 2. It really does, isn't it? It's got a, it's got a period vibe to it in a very, in a very happy way. The smell of history. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Studio 2 is, it's been here since 1931 as well. Unlike Studio 1 or Studio 3, which we'll see in a bit, this studio hasn't changed a huge amount they kind of nailed it first time i think they if anything they worked out it was too lively so they hung these drapes down you can see sort of in the mid in the mid 50s but what you see is what you get with studio two it's a very warm sounding room it's a lovely sounding room it's not too bright it's not too dark it's not too reverberant it's not too dull it's just the perfect little room really and whatever you throw at it it seems to work so we're set up for a um, for a small orchestra here today but drums guitars bands you know, this is a great band tracking room we're not you know obviously the beatles and cliff Richard and the shadows and the pop music the pop revolution happened in in this room pretty much from a uk's point of view in the mid 50s when then these guitar bands came along which i think some of the classical or more traditional label heads thought it was a bit of a fad you know like this guitar music won't last um, but you know it happened here One of our favourite films of the year was One Night in Miami, an urgent, beautifully crafted discussion of race, rights and responsibility written by Kemp Powers. The story looks at the spiky friendship between the newly crowned boxing champion Cassius Clay, the soul singer Sam Cooke and the activist and minister Malcolm X. I spoke to Kemp about writing fictional speeches for historical figures and capturing both their strengths and vulnerabilities. From my generation, I'm Generation X. So Malcolm X is basically like our patron saint. Reading the autobiography of Malcolm X is a writer. I read it the first time, I think it's 16 years old. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a you, you cannot read that and not come away with an almost like deification of, of Malcolm X. But then you start reading other books and you get a more holistic view of, of the man. And I found myself yearning to see, I mean, I'm just what he went through in the last year of his life I wanted to see the vulnerability, you know, that, that I would sometimes hear about when you when you see people, one of our actors 
stumbled on, 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 a, on a great um, comment by Dick Gregory, who was a friend of, of Malcolm's, who described him as a bashful man. The fact when I'm looking at photos of Malcolm's, when he's not up on stage speaking, almost every photo, he's got a big, wide smile. You hear about him being a dry, having a quick, dry wit. All these things that I'm like, oh, I would love to see that part of Malcolm, because honestly, it makes me feel more connected to, to him. All of our heroes. I mean, the thing that makes Malcolm so iconic is his story of redemption. The fact that he started off and had a troubled childhood, ended up in jail and was able to redeem himself. That's what makes him so powerful to, to my generation. But I think in making everyone so perfect and flawless and never having any doubt, I think it actually makes them cold and distances us from them. These are always youth movements. And I was older on the day that I wrote this play than all four of those men were in that room. Right. And that's something that's really important to remember. We're talking about a 22-year-old, a 28-year-old, a 30-year-old, and a 39-year-old. These were young, young men accomplishing these things. And I think young men and women need to be made aware of that. They didn't always know what they were doing. Of course, they had to be filled with doubt. And I think bringing that element of it to life, I think, allows us to be to empathize more with them and to see ourselves in them. Yeah, and and that and and central to that, I suppose, is I guess what you might call the central conflict of the script, Kemp, which is Sam Cook and Malcolm X's. Well, Malcolm X, I, I guess, sees Sam Cook not as a slight figure, but as a man that hasn't embraced his full potential as a as a as a famous black man and what that can do and what that can change. This is pre a, a change is going to come. This is his emollient soul stuff that he's talking about. And he says, all you do is perform. And then Sam comes back at him with, well, you, you know, well, I, I perform. You stand up in front and try and piss people off, you know. <laughs> and so there's this central thing about the responsibility that a black man in that era, especially perhaps or perhaps still now, has to use his fame for, to, to further a cause. Now, that is there is some amazingly deft writing, some amazing political punches thrown and uh, taken there. I'm wondering the original writing of that. Did you have to kind of act that out? Did you have to give each man equal weight, or did that just did that just run for you? The writing of that. What was that like? Honestly, the first scene that I wrote in writing the play was the central argument between Malcolm and Sam. It was the part where he plays "Blowing in the Wind." That was the first scene that I wrote in the play because I felt like that was the most heightened, elevated part of the argument, and I worked incredibly hard. To, because I really didn't want people to come away feeling like one man was right or wrong. And that was the challenge, was that I wanted it to be balanced enough that in the moment that each one of them is making their argument, you as an audience member go, you know what, you're absolutely right. But then when the person makes their retort, you then go, wait a minute, you're absolutely right too. That's, that was what I was trying to go for, because the answer to the question of who's right is very situational. The fight between Malcolm and, and Sam isn't a real fight. It's based on what they represent, but it's a fight that goes on inside my head. It goes on inside Black creatives' heads all the time when they're trying to make a decision how to best handle the racism that is often in their face, whether it has to be like confronted directly, whether change can be brought about more from working within the system. It's very, very situational. And ultimately, neither Sam nor Malcolm's way of doing things is going to work in every single situation. And that's what I was really going for. That's why I was trying to get the balance. Theirs is the central conflict. And I think both Jim and Cassius 
represent a less extreme version of each man's way of thinking. I would argue that Jim falls closer to the Sam Cook way of thinking. Um, and this is just based uh -huh. on what Jim Brown did. Jim was the guy who started coming to work wearing a suit and a briefcase to remind people that to him, the NFL was just a job, no matter how good he was at it. He started a black economic union to give loans to black small businesses in Cleveland. These are all things that he did. Similarly, I think that Cassius was a brash, vocal, outspoken personality that was also more able to charm more people than Malcolm ever was. You know, it was, it was not seen as a constant direct threat. So I see them as kind of like slightly less extreme versions of that way of thinking, you know, but of course, no part of me ever thinks that Malcolm and Sam in a room would be fighting. I do believe that they had a respectful, friendly relationship. But for the purposes of this story, Malcolm is there to light a fire under people's asses. You know, that's his, that's his point is that Malcolm yeah. ultimately is why they all love Malcolm and why I love Malcolm is that Malcolm is pushing you to bring out the best in you, you know, and, and I wanted to show that how that might apply. Of course, Sam Cooke rose to that challenge without Malcolm's prodding, but of course he was really bothered by um, blowing in the wind. When he heard it, he really did say, oh man, <laughs> I should have written that song. This is kind of embarrassing. Yeah. That's why Sam covered blowing in the wind before he did a change is gonna come. So it's coming from a very real place. When Sam Cooke died just a few months after that night um, in Los Angeles, what did they find outside in his red Ferrari? a bottle of scotch next to a copy of Muhammad Speaks. So obviously you can't argue that Malcolm and Malcolm's teachings didn't have some kind of influence on the man. It wasn't only COVID we caught this year, we caught Bond fever too. The side effects of which were being a bit sad, but having a vodka martini to soothe our souls. Monocle24's very own international man of mystery, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, met the director of No Time to Die, Carrie Joji Fukunaga, and asked him to shed some light on what it's like to direct a Bond movie. The first film I saw in cinemas was um, A View to a Kill uh, with Roger Moore as Bond. And I'm from San Francisco Bay Area, Oakland. And so the finale of that film takes place on the Golden Gate Bridge, which is, you know, on the opening of the bay uh, right across from where I lived. And it was pretty amazing to see, you know, the Zeppelin and Christopher Walken, you know, battling out with Roger Moore as if it was really taking place, you know, in my home area. So like the, the make believe had crossed over into my everyday life. How did you bring kind of James Bond to a 2021 audience as well? Was there kind of any uh, updates perhaps in the character or you, you didn't want to change it too much? I think it's, it was definitely impossible to ignore the Me Too element that we'd been living with when we wrote this screenplay. There's no way to not sort of address the fact that the world is changing, the office place is changing, the dynamics everywhere are changing, and it's, you know, about time. So that is definitely a part of the story, but like we also were aware you just, you can't be reactionary. You can't act like, you know, a corporation might, you know, put a, you know, a stamp on something, acting like you're doing something that has to be sort of like tangible within the context of the story and has to make sense and it has to feel like it's real uh, and uh, taken seriously. And I think part of that, you know, Barbara Broccoli is one of the most or the most successful female producer. And, um, 
from the 90s when Judy Dench was brought in to play M, there was a change already taking place with the character where she calls out the misogyny in that film. So Daniel's run as Bond is, is, has continued that legacy of evolution. And I think bringing on female double O's and, and really fleshing out the female characters throughout the series, you know, Vesper Lind, I think was a very fleshed out character in the first film, has been the franchise's response to the changing world. And, and I was going to ask, you know, what's the most exciting part of directing a Bond movie? Because you're mentioning, of course, the, the more importance to female characters, but I believe even Daniel Craig, he portrayed more emotion as well. So I think it's not only about the, the big, exciting action scenes as well. There's, there's quite a lot of kind of emotionally depth to the character as well. But what was the most exciting parts of directing such a, you know, a large budget film like No Time to Die? Um, it was hard to kind of stop and take stock of the moment. I think we were definitely in it for most of the, the run of production because it was just time was, there was never any time, uh, and, uh, as the title says. And, um, but uh, I think some of the more exciting moments were when you, you got a second to sort of pinch yourself and, and realize you know, what you were doing, whether it was when like, the fancy cars came up or you know, just watching Daniel you know, as Bond do something that felt so quintessentially Bond. You know, in those moments, you're able to kind of appreciate it. But then obviously, all the weight of the, the things that were left to be done would come crashing back in. And then you're, you're back in work mode. Well, knowing a little bit of your work, I'm, I'm very excited to see what you bring, you know, to, to No Time to Die. And, and let's be honest here. I mean, some directors, they direct in more than one Bond movie. I mean, who knows? I mean, if you're invited for another one, would you, would you say yes? <laughs> uh, I would have to consider it. You know, I mean, I've never really done the same thing twice. So it's not so much for lack of passion or desire to, to, to shepherd the character forward even further. But it's more just, you know, with the limited time left that I have to make movies and television programs, I have to really be careful about what I choose because there's, there is only so much time. One of the most talked about novels of the year was called No One Is Talking About This. Patricia Lockwood is the author and one of the most witty and insightful voices of our age, pointing her pen toward our lives online. Here is the Dorothy Parker of the digital age, Patricia Lockwood, on the novel as a format. I wonder what you think of the novel nowadays as what it once was, as the sort of perfect embodiment of the, the perfect way to put across ideas, ideas of morality, ideas of story, ideas of characterization, and things like that. Like most novels start off in a Word document on someone's laptop, when it starts off on the medium that it comes from, and then it ends up on paper, do you still have the utmost faith in the book as an object of being able to transport you to other places? Or has the internet infringed on the perfection of the book to a certain extent, I wonder? Well, I think that books only come to seem perfect when they are bound. I think it's always true that you start out with a sheaf of papers, and before you have that, you start out with this fluid idea, this fluid narrative, something that exists on the inside of the brain. It has felt a little bit stranger to hold this one in a bound copy than it did pre-study or a poetry book or something like that. But no, I do believe in the book as an object or I wouldn't have written it. I do believe that, that certain observations belong here while others belong maybe on the internet more. But it feels different to hold it in my hands because there was the sense, particularly writing the first half of the book, that it could have gone 
gone on forever. And probably as a person is reading it, they wonder that. It's like, where does this stop? What happens really to rescue the heroine? You know, what plucks her out of this? When the second half of the book arrives, I think it probably comes as a shock, but it might also come as a relief that some hand has descended to lift her out. But no, I mean, I began writing books. I'm very much a traditionalist in certain ways where I, I do want to hold that in my hand. I do want something that, that smells like a book. I do believe in books still. And nonetheless, I mean, the, the spirit of certainly the first half, as we might call it, of the novel, your protagonist, your heroine is so inside the internet that she's commenting on it. She's part of it. She couldn't be who she is without it in certain ways. Rather than ask you if that rings true to yourself, I suppose it's also a wonderful way of getting kind of discovered. I mean, your protagonist, what's her wonderful tweet? Can a dog be twins? Can a dog be Can twins? Can a dog be twins? Yes, <laughs> and suddenly she's traveling the world, dispensing advice and sort of lecturing and being on panels about kind of digital culture and what the internet means and things like that. That's only a step away from reality, right? Being a sort of an accidental influencer or something like that. Yeah. And it is very funny because that's satirical, obviously. No one ever really questions this premise that she's become so famous on the basis of this tweet about can a dog be twins? Yeah, it was it was where I rose to prominence, certainly. But that didn't start out being my idea about what was going to happen. I had really been on the internet for such a long time before it was a possibility that you could come to this extreme visibility. I think that that sort of arrived with Twitter. We came into a situation where it seemed like suddenly Twitter was the world's brain and it was the world's eyes. And you could become famous there. You could become famous there for something small. You could become notorious there for, for something small, right? You know, falling off a, a very, very gentle cliff. And then by the end of the day, everyone knows your name. Every day, their attention must turn like the shine on a school of fish all at once, toward a new person to hate. Sometimes the subject was a war criminal, but other times it was someone who made a heinous substitution in guacamole. It was not so much the hatred she was interested in as the swift attenuation, as if their collective blood had made a decision. But I thought, what if there is this protagonist? She's not a writer. You know, she doesn't have this reliance on quotes, on books that I would have. Those are largely absent from this text. But she's been plucked out of it and she's been set on a cloud just because of this single thought that everyone has kind of adopted as their own. So it exists in everyone's mind at once and to a certain extent, too, in everyone's mouths. Everyone feels some ownership over it, right? Because it, it's like something you would have written. It's like something you would have thought. Can a dog be twins? <laughs> This program digs the novelist Max Porter. Heat of grief is the thing with feathers and Lanny fame. Max loves and is also rather repelled by the paintings of Francis Bacon and his latest book dwelt on the artist's mind as he lay on his deathbed in Spain. Max is big on monsters and the uncanny in his novels. So where do the strange entities in his books come from, I asked. Are they inspired by Francis Bacon? They certainly relate, I guess, across all my work, it relates to the kind of the, the mythic function, which would, in, in, most, in most cases in my work, would be the same as the uncanny or, or the ghostly or uh, I think also probably the scatological. I think perhaps it comes from an attempt to... Someone recently in, spoke to me about my work and called, asked me with the relationship between um, the misanthropic and the affectionate. And, and I think it's probably in that area 
the kind of anti-denial effort of writing from a sort of Martian point of view, or using the folkloric or the bodily as a kind of Martian device to remind the human being of the bodily truth that that in that in the kind of late stages of capitalism in a globalized environment we are in denial constantly of the human cost of our actions or our spending or our imbibing we wouldn't eat any of the shit we eat if we knew what it was made of you know it's a kind of so i suppose there is something quite baconian about that nudging of the abattoir into polite society not 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 for shock because we know that shock as a concept has sort of been emptied out of its value you know the the, the YBAs discovered that didn't they with their attempts to shock and and actually as 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 people like Damien Hurst discovered there is you can put as many dead things in cars or, or you know penises coming out of people's eyeballs as much as you like but actually they're somehow not shocking in the same way that a bacon is still shocking and why was that bacon shocking people always say oh, it's, he, he, you know he exhibited that first the, the iconic triptych of the figures at the base of the crucifixion in 1940 whatever it was seven right and that christ you know just after the end of the war and london was still bombed and you know what a shocking thing that was and I thought, well why is it still shocking in 2021 because of its relationship to what exists elsewhere other types of figuration and stuff so i suppose i'll always want this truth telling i think it's to do with truth is the answer i guess it's always for me a kind of collaging I guess I need I need to get the balance right between what is horrific and what is tender. Um, and if there's not enough shit and piss and blood and, and unease, then I'm not doing a good enough job to, to get at what it's like to be alive now. And Max Porter's brilliant The Death of Francis Bacon is out now. The wonderful novelist and non-fiction king Andrew O'Hagan also came on to talk about his latest novel, Mayflies, and we could have talked for weeks. The man is a font of stories. But here we talked about his two main characters from Mayflies, Tully and Jimmy, and their relationships with music and time. Jimmy in the, in the, in the novel is sort of accused by Tully near the end of kind of, not setting out in any way, but, you know, of kind of, putting on the Echo and the Bunnyman or whatever whenever he wants to go to whenever he's getting ready to go to a party or the blasting the Smiths out whenever he and his wife go to a party but basically most of the time he's listening to Marler and Ravel well that's right his (laughs) wife has to go at him for you know uh, Tully's still and there were guys like that they were still holding on to their old enthusiasms into their 40s and 50s whereas the narrator of this book has gone to London long since and he's become this middle-class person. And his wife, you know, uh, makes a fool of him for sticking um, Mahler on as they're getting dressed to go to a function. Uh, and his old pals would laugh at that because they're still listening yeah. to the Smiths. Come on, uh, darling, it's his fourth. It's, it's the, the jolly one. Uh, so it's the jolly one. And, uh, so we could play Heartful of Hollow if you like. But, you know, those boys were listening to the Smiths again you know, 30 years after the band split mm. up. And, you know, that's the thing about uh, personal history and the book tries to encapsulate that is that time comes so fast at you and suddenly the decades are behind you and the distance between your teenage self and who you are now arrives so suddenly that um, you want to slow the whole thing down and ask what was it all about? Yeah. And I think that that's the question that really rises out of Mayflies. It's what was that friendship? What was that lifetime experience of camaraderie all about? 
That was Andrew O'Hagan talking about the excellent mayflies. Talking of which, our season in the sun has come to an end for another year, and in more ways than one. This programme is the last to be produced by the wonderful, supremely talented and generous Holly Fisher, whose name you've heard attached to this show for a decade. Thank you, Holly, for your great ideas, for the WhatsApps of pictures of your parents, Jack Russell, Otis, and thank you for being my radio friend and my actual friend. I'll miss you. For the time being, from me, Robert Bound, thanks for tuning in. Thank you.